Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, Mehdi Hassan here. Before we get to the show today, I have a favor to ask. Right now, you can head over to theintercept.com forward slash give and contribute to the show. The Intercept needs to raise a half a million dollars by May the 31st for our spring campaign. But we need your help to meet our fundraising goal. The Intercept and this show, Deconstructed, are powered by our readers and our listeners. And for $5 or $10 a month, you can support the independent adversarial journalism that you depend on. While many media outlets are continuing to devote their resources to breathless coverage of Trump's inane reality TV COVID briefings... We're out there reporting on the deadly consequences of his mounting policy failures. Just in the last few weeks on this show alone, I've spoken to California Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez about Elon Musk's bullying of local politicians over the coronavirus threat, to Emily Bazelon uh, talking about the dangers of the Bill Barr Department of Justice, the abuse of power that's going on there, and memorably to Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez about the necessity for bold federal action on behalf of the working class in the middle of this job-killing pandemic. But here's the thing. Our journalism absolutely depends on the support of listeners and readers. Have you wondered at any point how we're continuing to bring you this show week after week, even as I remain quarantined in my home near Washington, D.C.? Because we have the equipment and the staff to do so. We invest in journalism. We invest in podcasting. But that investment, of course, costs money and needs your support. During the pandemic, some people have found that they're just not able to continue with their regular donations. We understand what a chaotic and difficult time this is for so many people out there. But it means that we're even more reliant on those of you who can still afford to support our work. So head over to theintercept.com forward slash give and make a donation today. $5, $10 a month, whatever amount works best for you. That's theintercept.com forward slash give. Now, on to today's show. It's a catastrophe. It's death by public policy. It's premeditated. They know what they're doing. You should feel it as a national catastrophe, a global outrage. Welcome to Deconstructed. I'm Mehdi Hassan. It's official. This week, the death toll from COVID-19 in the United States crossed the 100,000 mark. It's slightly under the population of New Haven, Connecticut. So think about wiping out the city I live in right now over the course of three months. That's my guest today, Yale University epidemiologist Greg Gonsalves. So what happens now? What does the science say? And can this virus be beaten by us, acting as individuals, as communities, even with an incompetent leader like Donald J. Trump in the White House? The nation stares down a grim milestone. 100,000 deaths from the coronavirus. It is a staggering number reached at a shocking pace. The U.S. has more cases and deaths than any other country. By the time you listen to this podcast, the official death toll from COVID-19 in the United States will have crossed the 100,000 mark. That's 100,000 people dead from COVID-19 in the U.S. The highest number of deaths in the world. Men, women, children, 
Holocaust survivors, World War II veterans, playwrights, actors, teachers, janitors, doctors, nurses, kindergartners, all gone in the space of just four months. That's more Americans than died in the Korean, Vietnam, Persian Gulf, Afghanistan and Iraq wars. That's more people than die every year in the US from drug overdoses, gun violence, HIV AIDS. A hundred thousand dead people, many of whose blood is on Donald Trump's tiny hands. And that's not hyperbole. That's not just me gratuitously or personally attacking the president because I don't like him. No, that's what actual scientific studies suggest. Last week, researchers at Columbia University found that if the United States had begun imposing social distancing measures one week earlier than it did in March, just one week earlier, around 36,000 fewer people would have died. 36,000 fewer people. Two weeks earlier, and there'd have been 54,000 fewer deaths from the coronavirus in the US. 54,000 people. Trump's response to that damning study? Columbia is a liberal, disgraceful institution to write that. Yeah, science, mathematics, epidemiology. They all have a liberal bias, apparently. Facts are biased against conservatives. They can be safely dismissed if you're on the right. Remember when conservatives used to go on about facts don't care about your feelings? Well, apparently, if the feelings of the thin-skinned orange dude in the Oval Office are offended, then no, actually, facts should be ignored. Science should be disregarded. How convenient. Never forget, though, that the death toll, now officially above 100k, was supposed to be zero. Zero. That's what Trump himself said at the end of February. When you have 15 people and the 15 within a couple of days is going to be down to close to zero, uh, that's a pretty good job we've done. Close to zero. So he was only off by 100,000 deaths and 1.6 million cases. Yet the really big problem is that we don't seem to care that much anymore. Not like we did at the start of the crisis. Perhaps it's pandemic fatigue. Perhaps it's that old line misattributed to Stalin. One death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic. But even those of us who loathe Trump have become numb to the mounting death toll. It's become a kind of background noise on our social media feeds. But it shouldn't be. These are not just numbers. These are people with lives, legacies, families. And they're gone. Americans should be mad, angry, freaking furious. The vast majority of these deaths in the richest country in the history of the world did not have to happen. They were preventable. Be mad about that. Don't let the people in power get away with it. South Korea had its first case of COVID-19 on the same day as the United States back in January. Today, South Korea has lost less than 300 people to the virus. The US has lost more than 100,000. But here's the thing. We have, and I think this was always Trump's aim, his goal, normalized this horrific and record US death toll. Normalized mass death. Made it a price worth paying for the quote-unquote reopening of the economy. The pro-life party, so-called, is now the pro-death party, and we just accept that. Just like we've accepted every other broken norm and violated law and abuse of power and major scandal that we've witnessed in plain sight over the past three and a half years. Just like we've uniquely, among the world's industrialized countries, accepted gun deaths in this country in the tens of thousands for far too long. I guess the fact that the victims of COVID-19 are disproportionately black and brown helps people to ignore it, minimize it, normalize it. 
I mean, this is how Alex Azar, Trump's health secretary, defended the record number of deaths from COVID-19 in the U.S. on CNN recently. Unfortunately, the American population is a very diverse and, and it is a it is a population with significant unhealthy comorbidities that do make many individuals in our communities, in particular African-American, minority communities, um, particularly at risk here. Got that? It's the diversity that's causing the mass deaths. Those irresponsible, unhealthy black people. Meanwhile, as one white member of the public who was out and about in a wealthy suburb of Georgia, as he told the Washington Post recently, when you start seeing where the cases are coming from and the demographics, I'm not worried. There you have it. Saying the quiet part loud. It's those poor black folks who are dying, not us. So why should we sacrifice our haircuts and our trips to the nail salon? By the way, it's worth pointing out that while, yes, black and brown people are disproportionately suffering from COVID-19, the majority of deaths still are of white people. And as The Post reported last week, quote, rural counties now have some of the highest rates of COVID-19 cases and deaths in the country, topping even the hardest hit New York City boroughs and signaling a new phase of the pandemic, end quote. A new phase. It's not going away anytime soon. You can expect new waves of the virus, especially as we drop our guard, we relax our social distancing, as states, quote, reopen for business. And yet, the federal government has no plan. Donald Trump is busy trying to force the state government in North Carolina to let him hold a packed GOP convention there in August, in defiance of all social distancing rules. More crowds, more deaths. But then again, why wouldn't he try and do that? Why wouldn't he try and get away with this all? Remember what then-candidate Trump said in January 2016. They say, I have the most loyal people. Did you ever see that? Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? It's like incredible. It turns out that Trump didn't have to kill a man in the middle of Fifth Avenue, New York, to prove how loyal his followers are. Over the past four months, he's helped the coronavirus kill 100,000 people across this entire country. And yet his approval rating with Republican voters is still around 90%. He still has more than 40% support, almost half the country among the public at large. 100,000 dead hasn't dented that. And so here's the big challenge. Trump will be president for at least the next eight months, if not longer. Can this virus be beaten with him in charge? How many more deaths are coming on his watch? And are we ready for the almost inevitable second wave of this horrible pandemic? My guest today is an assistant professor of epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health and co-director of the Global Health Justice Partnership. As a young man in the 1980s, Greg Gonsalves was also a prominent activist with the AIDS advocacy group ACT UP. Greg recently made headlines when he pointed to the number of black and brown deaths from COVID-19 and suggested the Trump administration was getting, quote, awfully close to genocide by default. Strong words. He joins me now from New Haven, Connecticut, to offer his insights and his expertise. Greg, thanks for coming on Deconstructed. Thank you for having me. Greg, if I say to you, 100,000 people dead from the coronavirus in the United States, what's your first response? What do you think? It's a catastrophe, right? Um, you know, if we start to try to add up those figures, um, it's uh, the death of, that happened in the Vietnam and Korean War combined in the United States. Um, it's three times the population of my small hometown in New York. 
Uh, it's uh, slightly under the population of the town that I'm sitting in right now, New Haven, Connecticut. So think about wiping out the city I live in right now over the course of three months. And you should feel it as a national catastrophe, a global outrage. And do you agree with data scientists at Columbia University who say that tens of thousands of deaths could have been prevented if the government, both the federal government under Donald Trump and state governments in places like New York under Andrew Cuomo, had they acted earlier? Well, you know, nobody can sort of go back in time and, and, and understand what would have been. But I do think we have some counterfactuals in the response to the pandemic by places like New Zealand, like South Korea, Hong Kong, yes. Germany, Denmark. And so, yes, I think there are tens of thousands of deaths that were uh, avoidable uh, if we had acted earlier. What's important to note is that there's still no national response in the United States. So we're still in sort of this head in the sand mode in terms of how we're dealing with the pandemic. And so there'll be lots of other avoidable deaths over the months and years ahead. How high do you think the death toll will go, given, as you say, there's still no plan? Even now, several months into this crisis, we talk about, quote unquote, reopening, but there's no actual plan to beat this virus from the federal government. So how many more deaths could we expect? Well, you know, again, it's hard to predict the future, um, but it's pretty clear is that the Imperial College of Medicine in the UK just came out with a report on Sunday that suggested about 24, so slightly under half the states in the United States have uncontrolled epidemics, Right. Um, which means we are not, quote-unquote, flattening the curve as a nation in terms of deaths anytime soon. While the the big caseloads in New York City uh, and in Boston may be ebbing, um, we're seeing new cases and new hotspots appear in the South and the Midwest. So I think we're going to see plateauing of deaths, um, maybe a slow decline during the summer and maybe a resurgence in the fall. But the point is is that there's no way... uh, that we should expect the epidemic to be under control in the United States because we haven't made the effort to make it that way. You've said uh, that given the high proportion of deaths among African-Americans and Latinos, quote, this is getting awfully close to genocide by default. What else do you call mass death by public policy? Do you think accusing Trump of genocide is hyperbole? Or do you stand by that description? So, you know, today a comrade of mine, Larry Kramer, who is the founder of ACT UP, died. Uh, in his apartment in New York at 84 years old. Um, And back in the 1980s, um, we were all going to funerals every week, every month. um, And hundreds of our friends were dying week after week after week. It took 10 years for 100,000 people to die of AIDS in this this country. And it took seven years for the president then to sort of speak out uh, and even say the word AIDS. We've done this in in three or four months, we've lost 100,000 people across the country. Mm. Again, many of them people of color, Latinos, African-Americans. And no, it's not akin to the Nazi genocide or the Rwandan genocide, but it's death by public policy. You may think it's a a trivial example, but Elizabeth Taylor, the the, the former Oscar winner, once at an AIDS conference said that what had happened in the AIDS epidemic was was akin to premeditated murder. Maybe that's an apt, better apt phrase. It's death by public policy. It's premeditated. They know what they're doing. There's too many people who said uh, from both sides of the aisle, uh, from the, the center-right and the center-left that have said, you know, you need to you know, to take a concerted effort to, to test, trace, isolate. Uh, and they've been saying it for months. And the White House has said, uh, you're on your own. Uh, tough luck. It's not my responsibility. I take no responsibility. So, yeah. So, Indeed. So, so maybe using the, the word genocide was hyperbole. 
Um, but he's complicit in deaths, is what you're saying, in mass deaths. Um, do you think Trump could be held liable one day for the deaths on his watch? Glenn Kirshner, who's a former federal prosecutor, said on this show a few weeks ago that he believes U.S. states could bring charges against Trump for manslaughter as soon as he leaves office in January 2021, assuming he loses. So, again, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know the criminal law. I don't know the law of, of war crimes, for instance. Um, and so, you know, I, I think he needs to be held politically responsible. I mean, what I'm thinking is that we should have a 9-11-like commission or a Truth and Reconciliation Commission as soon as we can sort of mobilize ourselves to do it. Because I think um, there's also the um, trap of thinking it's just about Trump, right? Um, it's not just about Trump. It's about uh, Mitch McConnell in the Senate. You know, what happened in New York City is also needs some scrutiny. There is sort of a, yes. a weird tango of, of delay between the governor, the, the mayor of New York City, the head of the Health and Hospitals Corporation in New York City and, and the head of the health department, all, all sort of striving for position and, and control over the early epidemic, which, again, probably led to more than a few hundred unnecessary deaths. Let's talk about the virus itself and how we fight it, how we protect ourselves against it. I want to take advantage of your expertise and put some questions to you that a lot of us have, a lot of friends and family members and colleagues of mine. We discuss this endlessly, as I'm sure many of our listeners do. And everyone has an opinion. Nowadays, everyone pretends to be an expert on stuff like this. Uh, you're an actual expert. Let me put some questions to you. We know Trump's criteria for reopening, quote unquote, are self-serving, unscientific BS. But what are the actual scientific criteria you would use to say, we're ready to go back to the way things were? We're ready to open states and go back to school and go back to work. And how far away are we from meeting those criteria? So one is, is that um, Trump's own scientific advisors have laid out a, a plan for moving ahead, which is somewhat in sync with sort of the outside advice that um, people like Scott Gottlieb, who is his former FDA commissioner, yes. Tom Frieden who is a former CDC commissioner under President Obama, and others have laid out, is that we need to see a sustained reduction in cases, hospitalizations, over two weeks or more. And that's not like just a, a slight decline in cases, a real substantial decline. Then we're going to have to have testing scaled up to, to a degree that we can understand what the shape of our epidemic is out in the communities that we're going to start to leave, unleash people in, right? Uh, and then we need to figure out who's infected, uh, we need to trace their contacts and isolate them in a humane way to take care of their social and economic needs. There and then we can move ahead to, to start to reopen our, uh, our states. But, you know, the, the cow is out of the barn or whatever the, the phrase is uh, here in the U.S. is that, you know, most states have, have um, not met these criteria by a long shot. And yet they're plowing ahead regardless. How worried are you about a second wave? Is it inevitable? You know, I, I, I'm... I'm not going to play fortune teller, but all the the preconditions for a second wave are in place. Um, relaxing the social distancing in the middle of um, uh, uncontrolled epidemics, as the Imperial College uh, report showed on Sunday. Uh, the the sort of uh, still paucity of testing around the U.S. The sort of really uh, fitful starts to contact tracing around the around the country. So, you know, if you look at countries, uh, China, South Korea. Uh, look at Hong Kong, look at Germany, look at Denmark. All these other countries have f figured out how to scale up their public health response to deal with the first part of the crisis, which was the first wave, and are ready for the second wave. Um, we still are sort of spinning our wheels in terms of sort of the initial response. Yes. Uh, and sort of probably about three or four weeks ago, we threw up our hands saying, you know, uh, we can't do it. We're just going to open up and come what may. I mean, even here in Connecticut, I think we're the last state to reopen. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's, I don't think there's any sort of graduated plan of reopening. I think it's slowly by the middle of the summer, most of the restrictions will be lifted and we'll be, it'll be up to you and me and other people alone to sort of decide if we're going to shelter in place. And I think that's going to be done based on, on, on our ability to do that. So let's talk about our ability to do that and in terms of what you and I can do and ordinary people can do. In terms of social distancing, this phrase that we none, none of us had heard of a few months ago, but we now all talk about it endlessly. Social distancing when you're out and about, what is the safe way of doing it? Is it three feet six feet? Is it six feet plus a mask? Is it 27 feet? Because I know there have been studies showing that to be safe from coughing or sneezing or loud talkers, it's better to be 27 feet away. What is the best way in your view to socially distance when you have to go out and walk around and be in public? There's a spectrum of ways to keep yourself safe. Um, Julia Marcus, um, a friend of mine who's an epidemiologist in Boston, has written a piece for The Atlantic um, and Vox, uh, the news site has put together a sort of infographic on it about sort of harm reduction in the context of social distancing. So the safest thing to do is what you and I are doing right now. We're talking on the phone, uh, sort of sheltering in place, doing our business in our apartments. When we go out, we should be wearing masks, right? Particularly if we're going to be going to a grocery store or other sort of places where there are other people. When we're talking to people on the street, we should maintain six feet of distance wearing a mask as well. So what Julia Marcus has said is that, um, you know, you need to think of it on a continuum from lowest risk to, to medium risk to higher risk to highest risk, right? Highest risk is being unmasked with other people in a closed environment. So think a crowded bar on a Friday night masked without masks yeah. or, or a restaurant uh, on a Saturday evening, again, without masks uh, yeah. at full capacity. And so we're trying to reduce our risk. You know, we can't sort of bubble wrap ourselves mm. uh, and protect ourselves completely yeah. and keep our sanity, right? We want to be able to sort of figure out how we can do this for the long term. Should schools, in your view, be reopening in the fall? Because some of us who are parents of young kids, we're wondering, do we send our kids back to school? The scientific evidence is mixed. Some people say there's a low risk of transmission from kids. Others, including Dr. Anthony Fauci, say we don't know enough about the risk. We need to be more cautious. In Germany, they're slowly opening up their schools. In Switzerland, I believe, they've, they're allowing under 10s to hug their grandparents because they say there's such a minuscule risk of transmission, they believe, from those kids. Where do you stand on this? Well, I think I would agree with Dr. Fauci that we, you know, it's not even six months that we've sort of been living with this virus, right? Um, yes, you know, the first cases are in, at the end of 2019, beginning of uh, 2020. Um, but, you know, it's not even June yet. We don't have six months of, of information on how this virus reacts in these, in these settings. We shut everything down. Uh, and now we have to figure out how to open it up safely. 
I think when you're thinking about places like universities, I think you're thinking about how you're going to test everybody. You need to know what your the state of your um, epidemic is within your, your your institution. And that's going to mean testing not once when they come back in the fall, um, but doing it on a regular basis. The other thing is that, you know, if we're talking about young school children who may be at less risk of serious disease, uh, they still may transmit the virus, but, you know, children don't go to school alone. They go into schools with, with, with their teachers, with their administrators, with the, the people serving them lunch in the cafeteria. Um, there's a whole set of, of, of risk point. that's not about them. And the other, the, other, the other piece here is that if we think of schools or prisons or nursing homes or meatpacking plants as institutional amplifiers, it's not just about what happens in that school and happens to those kids, but it's what goes into these amplifiers comes out into the community at large. So mm. you could use these things could propagate um, larger epidemics. We've talked a bit about going outdoors, whether it's going out to a grocery store or being on a university campus. There's another issue, of course, with this virus, which is even at home, people are worried about how they're getting exposed through because people have to buy groceries. They get deliveries from Amazon or wherever it is. They bring home their you know food and groceries to the house and unpack it. You had this New England Journal of Medicine study in March showing that the virus is still detectable up to three hours in the air, I believe, up to four hours on copper, 24 hours on cardboard, two to three days, they said, on plastic or stainless steel. The CDC recently revised its guidance and said, actually, uh, surface transmission, very low risk, not really that much to worry about. A lot of people don't know whether they can trust the CDC anymore, given how many mistakes they've made since this crisis began. Should we be taking the guidance on surfaces seriously, not seriously? Where do you stand on that? So again, you know, we are not going to bubble wrap ourselves and dip ourselves in in um, disinfectant every time we go out of the house. The point is, is that, you know, if I go to the grocery store, I'm wearing a mask, I'm wearing disposable gloves and, you know, they have uh, disinfectant wipes at the store, and I wipe down the surface of the cart that I'm using in, in the grocery store. Um, the, the point is you use all reasonable precautions. The idea is not to sort of to keep you so afraid that you never leave your house or you can't do it without sort of uh, this state of high anxiety. The point is wash your hands. You know, wash them for 20 seconds, two rounds of happy birthday, however you want to count it. Um, wear gloves in, in, in public settings where you're going to be touching surfaces, wear a mask. Uh, and, and, you know, those basic precautions will, are going to do a lot. If we all wore masks, if we all wore gloves when we needed to be in places that are high-touch environments like stores, um, uh, if we used, you know, we washed our hands when we came home, we do a lot of, uh, of good in addition to sort of the social distancing that we've been all doing for, for many, many weeks. But, but isn't the problem that you get this kind of mixed advice? So you have the CDC saying it's not a risk on surfaces. You have other scientists saying it, it could be a risk. People don't know what to believe. Yeah. And look, you know, this is in the context of a president saying take hydro hydroxychloroquine and I'm not yes. certainly going to wear a mask because I'm the president of the United States. So like, it's not even poor messaging. It's the misinformation, disinformation that's come out of the White House since the beginning, which is the biggest problem, right? Yes. Um, in, in general, I, I am inclined to believe this, the, the CDC guidance. I've looked at it. It's not, you know, I think details about whether there's going to be um, transmission from a copper surface versus a wood surface. Again, we're like, we're four to five months into this. None of these experiments have been done. We're extrapolating from from sort of other diseases, other situations. Yeah. Uh, but what the what the CDC is recommending and what other uh, public health bodies around the world are recommending are sort of the basic public health protections that um, uh, we've used for 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 decades now to sort of deal with sort of respiratory viruses. Um, and this isn't you know the big thing is is COVID nineteen is not some new virus from out of space. It's a coronavirus. There are coronaviruses in our daily lives, common cold. SARS, MERS, 
Um, and, you know, we've had some exposure to think about how to deal with them. And so we don't have to sort of get um, too obsessed about every little detail about trying to protect ourselves. And you mentioned the importance of testing. And of course, the US isn't testing enough. But again, then there's a question mark about the test results and how much can they be trusted? There's all these studies now coming out suggesting, I think NBC News had a story this week about how the COVID-19 tests, something like 20% of results are false negatives, are missing the disease. Even the antibody tests, according to the CDC, are wrong 50% of the time. How much faith can we place in a testing apparatus if they're missing so much of the disease? So... We make a lot of judgments in our lives with partial information, right? Every day, every day, we walk out of the house make, making decisions that we don't know everything about uh, what's going to happen. And the point is, it's not to sort of wrap yourself in this notion of some paranoid hysteria that um, nothing is true, nothing is certain. It's like I deal with risk every time I wake up mm. and get out of bed. Um, and so, yes, we don't know all the details about how the virus gets transmitted on surfaces. But we do know that if you wash your hands and you wear gloves and you wear a mask and you don't touch your face, that's a good thing. Um, you know, the question about six feet or 20 feet or whatever, we know that it's not under six feet, right? You know, the question about the tests, yes, there are some false negatives with the tests. But, you know, if, if I had uh, respiratory symptoms and a fever and other symptoms of COVID and I got tested and had a negative test, I'd probably assume I had COVID. But that doesn't help the asymptomatic folks, though, does it? No, it doesn't. And, and you know, the tests are going to have to get better. You know, in HIV, what we do is we screen people for disease and then we give them a confirmatory test. You know, maybe there's a question of, of how we're going to sort of um, change our testing algorithms or, or develop better tests to get us through. The point is, is that we do have diagnostics that are, are pretty good. Are they perfect? No, but most tests are not 100% sensitive and specific. By the way, just on the whole antibody test and testing whether you may or may not have had it already, is there any clear evidence on whether you can catch the virus again having already had it, whether having it beforehand gives you immunity? Well, a couple of things. One is, is that I don't think there's been any sort of well-documented cases of reinfection. I think what we're talking about in terms of immunity um, is that, you know, you develop antibodies to infections as your body uh, encounters them. Um, do those antibodies confer immunity to an infection um, or not? And how long does, does those antibodies last and how long does that protection last? Some coronaviruses, like the co ones that are associated with the common cold, you know, wane after a few months, a year, and, uh, and you're, you're susceptible to the same kinds of virus. Um, it looks like SARS, maybe two to three years protection or more. We, just, we simply don't have the, the time scale right now to understand how long uh, antibodies to um, SARS-CoV-2 um, might be protective if they're protective at all. We're just going to need to figure this out as we go along. But saying that because I took an antibody test and I was positive uh, makes me immune is, is not a risk I would want to take right now. And a lot of scientists, as you know, at the beginning of the crisis, especially in my home country, the UK and elsewhere, in Sweden and elsewhere, talked a lot about herd immunity. In fact, uh, one of de Blasio's main health advisors was talking about it in private emails, as we now know. Um, is that still an option or has that been thoroughly discredited, the idea of herd immunity? Well, you know, the Swedish example didn't work out too well. They have some of the worst death rates in Europe now, and they didn't avoid the economic consequences of, of what happened yes. around the rest of the continent. To reach herd immunity means, you know, we're going to need 60, 70, 80% of the population infected. Uh, and that means, you know, tens of thousands of people will be dead. I, I, it, it's sort of Malthusian or, 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 or creepy utilitarian notion to think that we can sacrifice, you know, our grandparents, our parents, the, the, the infirm, the immunocompromised for this notion of herd immunity. Um, the Swedish example didn't bear itself out. Uh, 
Yeah. The Imperial the Imperial College study that came out on Sunday said probably around four or five percent of the American public has been exposed or infected with the virus. And even places like New York City, it's maybe 16 percent, 15 percent. So there's a huge, huge, huge um, uh, difference between that and sort of achievement of herd immunity. Opening up, letting people get infected means we're also sort of saying uh, tens of thousands of people, tens of thousands of people, potentially hundreds of thousands more are expendable, which is, I, I think it's, um, it's nuts. It, it's, it's nuts. Uh, the president says we could have a vaccine and people talk about herd immunity normally in the context of a vaccine. He talks about um, having a vaccine ready to go by the end of this year. Even Dr. Anthony Fauci and Dr. Deborah Burks on the White House task force have said January 2021 could be a possibility for a vaccine if some corners are cut. Dr. Rick Bright, the Department of Health whistleblower who was the former top federal government vaccine official, says it could take 18 months minimum in his view, if not longer. William Hasseltine, the scientist behind a lot of groundbreaking research and HIV AIDS and cancer. He said recently, actually, we may never get a vaccine. We should prepare for the fact that we might never have a working vaccine. Where do you stand on that spectrum, on that timeline? How long do you think it'll take to get a deliverable working vaccine to hundreds of millions of people, if at all? Now, if I knew the answer to that, um, I'd be a very rich man because I would be investing <laughs> in, in you know, vaccine companies right now. I, you know, it's interesting that I, you know, I'm old enough now to remember when Margaret Heckler, who was the Secretary of Health and Human Services in the U.S., said in 1984, after the discovery of the HIV virus, that in two years we'd have a vaccine for AIDS. It's now 2020. It's many, many years ago. Um, so, you know, yes, technology has come a long way. We know much more about the immune system, how viruses work than we did, you know, in the age of uh, Ronald Reagan. But the point is, is that vaccine development is generally denominated in in years and decades, not months and weeks. Um, what's what's encouraging to see is that there's a, an enormous effort in the private sector and the public sector to compress uh, vaccine development by recruiting people for trials, pressing the phases of vaccine development. But then you run up against sort of the scientific obstacles themselves and you can't sort of um, uh, muscle your way past them basically by the force of your will or perseverance. Um, and so we'll see, uh, you know, I'm hoping that we will someday see a vaccine for COVID-19. We'll see one for HIV. You sound skeptical that we'll have one in January 2021, in six months' time. I'm not a betting man, but I don't. I would bet that we're not going to see one in six months' time. And I don't. You know, I think people are are um, peddling a little bit of false hope to think we're going to even have it within a year to eighteen months. It's interesting you mentioned false hope. One of the things that frustrates me is I wish we had leaders who could tell us that you know what. This is, in many ways, the new normal. We're not going to go back to business as usual. We're not going to go back to, you know, what life was like before anytime soon. Uh, would, am I wrong to think that, that we need to actually kind of dampen some people's hopes and expectations and get them more prepared for the new normal? Yeah. And, it, you know, what's sad is that, you know, Donald Trump and Boris Johnson are not those people, are not those yeah, politicians. Certainly not. But Angela Merkel and others have been much more forthright about what the, the what lies ahead for their countries. Um, and just into Ardern in, in, in New Zealand. And so I think there, there, there are leaders out there who are saying, look, all right, we, we thought we'd contain this and now we've seen 200 cases. Now they massively scale up testing and contact tracing to, to a level that seems uh, astounding to us here in the US. And in the absence of a vaccine, what is the safe way, if any, you know, we talked about going out and, you know, going to the grocery store and, you know, managing risk. But what about for those people who they don't want to go to bars or they don't want to go to crowded sports events or beaches, but they do want to see their parents who they haven't seen for several months. They do want to see their best friend who lives down the street. Is there a way of doing that safely right now in, in the 
In the UK, they're talking about, you know, expanding the circle to one family. One family can meet one other family now. Is that something practical? Yeah, this is consistent with the idea of harm reduction, right? Um, Is that you're not going to eliminate risk, you're going to reduce risk. The goal is not to, again, bubble wrap ourselves for eternity, but to figure out how to reduce our day-to-day risks. So, you know, my sister and her kids and her husband went out to see my mom uh, a few weeks ago. They did it on a sunny day. They did it six feet apart. They did it with takeout. They did it with gloves and masks. And um, they were able to see people they loved um, and do it safely. Opening up your sort of contact network to another family uh, seems like a reasonable thing to do as long as you're, you, you have some ground rules about what that means. It's an, incre- mm. it's an increasing risk. But if like, you trust them and say, look, you know, we're, we're, we're going to figure out you know, two of us are going to go to the grocery store. That's it. One for this family, one for this family. We'll combine some of these errands and minimize our risk together. That's good. The point is, is to figure out how do we do this over the long term? The, the biggest fear for me is people who are working in meatpacking plants who are locked up in prisons. Yes. Um, who have no choice in the matter. Um, that's the scariest yeah. thing for me because uh, middle class, middle class and upper class people have the luxury of, of sort of finessing the next uh, few months to years. The people who are in, in sort of mandatory uh, face-to-face contact on a daily basis who I fear most for. Last question for you, Greg. You've said that trying to control an epidemic in one part of the country while not controlling it in another uh, won't work. You've compared it to creating a peeing section in a swimming pool because there is no such thing. Uh, Obviously, it wouldn't work in a pool. Uh, Given in the United States, there is no uniform federal response to this pandemic. And you have some states taking it seriously, some not so seriously. And and that's not going to change anytime soon. Does that mean we're screwed? Um, Look, First of all, Carlos Del Rio from Emory came up with the ping in the swimming pool analogy. So I need to give credit where credit is due. <laughs> but the point is, is that viruses don't respect borders, right? Um, you know, we, we saw that in the beginning of this epidemic as it spread from China, then how it spread around the U.S. and how it spread around the world. It's, it, it's certainly not going to respect the borders between Connecticut and New York, where I live, uh, or Arizona and, and its neighbors, or Alabama and its neighbors. The point is, unless we control it everywhere in the U.S., we're not going to control it anywhere. And you know, it takes me back to the question, I, the statement I just made about people in prisons or places that are going to remain hotspots until we address the enhanced risk in those places, which starts to confront the way we think about incarceration in the U.S. as well. So it's not just going to be con- controlling this in our in our wider communities in all 50 states and territories in the U.S., but in the places that we tend to forget, the among the homeless, among the incarcerated, uh, among people in ICE detention centers and other places that will provide kindling for the next uh, next resurgence of the virus that we might see coming in the next few months uh, or or maybe as late as this fall. That is very, very true. Depressing, but very true. Uh, Greg Gonsalves, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for enlightening us on Deconstructed. My pleasure. Anytime. That was Yale professor Greg Gonsalves reminding us of the challenges, the huge challenges we face with the coronavirus, but also the ways in which we can all manage risk. And that's our show. And a reminder once more to head over to theintercept.com forward slash give and make a donation. $5 or $10 a month, any amount that feels right for you. That's theintercept.com forward slash give. Shows like this one depend on your support. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. 
Our producer is Zach Young. The show was mixed by Brian Pugh. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief, and I'm Mehdi Hassan. You can follow me on Twitter at Mehdi R. Hassan. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. Go to theintercept.com forward slash deconstructed to subscribe from your podcast platform of choice, iPhone, Android, whatever. If you're subscribed already, please do leave us a rating or review. It helps new people find the show. And if you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you next week. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.